This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, John! With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello! Welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the kings and queens of England from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II. Unless something terrible happens. Unless something terrible happens. God save the Queen. As we <laughs> um, should say every week. <laughs> Um, we should, actually. <laughs> uh, John, now that was tricky you know, to do the intro. Yeah, first take, that was impressive. But the only John. He is, along with Stephen, he's the only post-conquest monarch who doesn't have a number because nobody else... That's the kind of facts you get with Rex Factor, you Exactly. Yeah. Um, before we get on to John, we've had some messages. We... Because we always encourage you to uh, either email us, rexfactorpodcast.com, um, we're on Twitter, at rexfactorpod, or you can leave a message on the website. Yeah. So, uh, we've heard on Twitter from Writing Henry, which I think is uh, someone, Debbie Lane, who's someone who's writing a book about Henry VIII. Oh, right, okay. And uh, they sent us a direct message saying they were looking forward to us getting on to Henry VIII, but they sympathised because it will be very tough for us to do yeah. all that in one episode. Yeah, but, I mean, she's clearly a fan, as as you are. Indeed. Oh, that is, we're going to have to be very strict on that. Very, very strict. Anyway, one day we'll get there. Uh, medieval World agreed with our judgments on Henry's first, second... And also Richard, but probably thought that Henry II deserved a slightly higher score uh, for scandal, given the murder of Thomas Beckett. Yeah, that, that, I mean, I've been thinking about that, and mm. that's a scandal that's resounded through the ages. I mean, we're still... Everyone knows who that is, everyone who's had a little look at history. Indeed, I think I marked it down a little bit, because I said it wasn't intentional on Henry's part, but nevertheless it was still it, a massive scandal. In his reign, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's done. Fair point, though. Yeah. And uh, also Nick, uh, Nick Humphrey, uh, emailed us saying that he picked me up on forgetting to mention Canute uh, when I ran through the list of Rex. Oh, yeah. We did forget about him. Yeah, I think I'm probably not going to do the list anymore because we've got Mm. a few too many. Yeah. But just a little note, hello to Canute if you're listening. (laughs) It's not not a racist thing. (laughs) It's not because you're Danish. (laughs) We haven't forgotten you. Um, And also, he thought that Henry II, again, should have lost subjectivity points for his poor parenting skills and the fact that his sons are always rebelling. Yeah, but that really was it. And, mm. in, and I think his sons... I think, I think it just showed how, uh, how, um, how much they, 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 they were... Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? They were, they were really ambitious as a family. You can see Very that in, his, in, his, yeah. in, his, uh, in Henry's parents as well. Mm. So it just showed that they were just... They were just a like father, like son. And for subjectivity, probably it doesn't actually affect normal people very much. There are only a few rebellions. Yeah. And really, it's more about the big players fighting it out rather than civil war. So, thank you for all your messages. Do um, get in touch with us if you want to. As we said, obviously, those are kings we've already done a few weeks ago. So, just any time, any king, let us know. Mm. So, back to John. Um, so, the quick recap then. His father, Henry II, had a largely very successful reign... Um, big Angevin Empire, which is all of England and west of France. Then his son, 
uh, Richard the Lionheart, goes off on the Crusades, very heroic, legendary figure. However, John isn't Richard, isn't renowned for being a great crusading, courageous man, and he also inherits a moody nobility, because they've been put under quite a bit of pressure to pay for Richard's crusade and to pay for his ransom when he was captured. And he's also got a scheming, increasingly powerful rival in uh, Philip II, who's the king of France. So he's got some tricky stuff to deal with. Yeah. So... John is born in 1167, son of Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine. He's the youngest son. Mm. Uh, and he becomes king in 1199, so he's about 31 years old, because he was born right at the end of 1167. And he's the 21st great-grandfather of Elizabeth II. Not something she'd be proud of. Oh, we need to judge him first. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. In terms of how he looks, he's about five foot five. so although not very short for the time, and compared to Richard and... Henry, he's fairly short for royalty. Um, another one with a sort of powerful um, big chest, dark red hair, and apparently he looked like he probably came from Poitou. Had a sort of a Poitouvin look yeah, to him. There we are. Which, yeah. not a reference to mean anything to us, but <laughs> at the time. And he is probably, again, one of the most famous monarchs mm. of uh, English history, but for completely the opposite reasons to Richard. Yeah. So BBC History magazine 2006 did a poll of the worst Britons from each of the last 10 centuries, and John was voted the worst of the 13th century. We didn't have much competition, really. I mean, there's not many mm. figures that st- stand out. And I, don't, I mean, again, it's how you judge him, isn't it? Because we're worst for the country, or worst monarch at the time? Well, indeed, or both. Or both. Well, <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Uh, Matthew Paris, a contemporary, says, Foul as it is, hell itself is defiled by the foulness of John. Who said that? Uh, Matthew Paris, oh, right. not the MP. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> And Bishop Stubbs, who is a historian early in the last century, said, The very worst of our kings, a faithless son, a treacherous brother, polluted with every crime, false to every obligation, in the whole view, there is no redeeming trait. Sounds like it was going to be a good one, then. Indeed. Pretty damning, but is he as bad as all that? We'll find out. So, as Prince John, as we said, he was the youngest son. So, when he was born, he had three older brothers. Richard, who became king, but also the young Henry, who was actually the oldest and did become was crowned during Henry II's lifetime but mm. died before him, and also Geoffrey, who was younger than Richard but older than John. So all of this meant that John didn't actually have any land that he was yeah. naturally going to inherit, yeah. and for that reason his father nicknamed him John Lackland. And his attempts to give John a bit of land in his inheritance often led to some of the strife and rebellions amongst the brothers when they were refusing to cede bits of their territories to each other. Uh. However, then, in 1185, um, Henry tries to make John King of Ireland, because he's acquired that as a territory. He isn't able to make him king, but he does make him the Lord of Ireland. So John goes over, attempts to rule in person. All ends rather disastrously when he insulted the local nobles by mocking and tugging at their unfashionably long beards. He walked up to them and pulled their beards. And laughed. (laughs) And they didn't like it. No, they didn't? No. No. And so he lost quite a bit of land and then returned in 1186, <laughs> blaming it on everybody else. <laughs> That's priceless. Um, he's also very untrustworthy. So, as he said, he betrayed his father um, at the end of his reign, 1189, when Richard had rebelled and had the upper hand, mm. which is devastating for Henry. He then rebels against Richard when he's on crusades, and particularly when he's imprisoned in Austria and tries to sort of steal the crown or steal yeah. some power, but is prevented from doing so by Ellen of Aquitaine. However, after Richard comes back in 1194, he actually serves him quite 
loyally, so he even launches a few successful attacks in French territory in support of Richard to regain some of the land that he'd lost. So, encouraged by Eleanor of Aquitaine, Richard names him as his heir. But successful military campaigns? Or? Well, yeah, there's a few like, little sieges yeah. that he does okay. and stuff. It's all supported. Mm. Awful. However, although he is um, seen as king in England and Normandy, he does have a rival, namely Arthur of Brittany. So this is John's nephew, i.e. the son of his elder brother, Geoffrey, who had died in 1186. Which is a more legitimate claim. Well, exactly, yeah. You could argue that as Geoffrey was an older brother than John, his line should come before John's line. But it's complicated by the fact that Geoffrey had died... Before the king, yeah. Before this. So, although John is recognised in England and Normandy, in Anjoumain and Touraine, i.e. in France, Arthur is seen as the inheritor of Richard's kingdom. And supported by barons there. Yeah. Mm. So you've got a bit of a split. Um, Philip II had always, in the reign of Henry II, and then in the reign of Richard, tried to play off the Angelin family against each other, i.e. to try and split the empire to get rid of his powerful rival. Yeah. So he, of course, supports Arthur in the hope that he'll be able to fragment the territories further. At this point, despite being about 77, 78 years old and grieving for the loss of her favourite son, Eleanor of Aquitaine comes back out of retirement, kicks into gear, sorts everything out for John. So um, she drives Arthur and his mother Constance out of Angers, does quite a big march from Fontrevaux, um, where Richard was buried, off sort of north to deal with the stuff. Back to Fontrove again to do some other She's stuff. She's incredible, this lady. And she pays Philip II homage for her lands in Aquitaine. I she's sort of paying him for sort of legal mm. rights to it. And what this means is that he doesn't have a legal cause to invade her lands as part of his dispute with John mm. because he's legally yeah, yeah, accepted she's her rights. So Aquitaine is out of his re- his reach at the moment. Yeah. So it's quite clever. And then in uh, 1200, the Treaty of Goulet, Philip recognises John as king, abandons his support for Arthur in return for which John cedes some of the territories that had recently been lost in France to Philip and acknowledges that Boulogne and Flanders are vassals of France. So John pretty much secured himself as king. That's pretty good for him. Pretty good. However, in 1202 he marries a young girl called Isabel of Angoulême. Um, A strategic marriage on another level because um, she was a young heiress so she was going to secure lands that would help the northern and southern parts of the Angevin Empire. However, she had been... Um, betrothed to a chap called Hugh de Lucian, Lucinian, yeah. um, who was a troublesome vassal for them in Aquitaine. And he complained about this, saying, you know, you should be giving me compensation or whatever, and John's pretty contemptuous of him and may even have attacked some of his lands <laughs> instead of paying compensation. So Hugh appeals to Philip II, mm. who, because of their agreement, you could now say that actually John has to answer to Philip on some of these things because he's agreed. He's a vassal in parts of... Parts of vassal. Yeah. John doesn't respond, so Philip declares that their treaty is now null and void and that John's lands are forfeit, so they're back at war. Right. Initially, it goes quite well. Uh, well, not so well. Eleanor gets besieged by Hugh and uh, Arthur of Brittany when she's trying to put down a rebellion. So she's at Mirabeau, trapped in a castle. Being attacked by her niece? Nephew. Nephew. Yeah, because oh, well. they're yeah. at odds again. Yeah. John comes storming to the rescue, uh, helps her out, gets her out of the castle, and captures Hugh and Arthur, plus lots of others. Wow. Big Good. victory yeah. for him. However, his response... He offends his allies by the way that he treats them, his other powerful people on his side, keeps the rebel leaders in really poor conditions, and it's 
very strongly thought, has Arthur murdered. Brilliant scandal. Indeed, his nephew murders, for which he loses the support of the French nobles. Mm. He then, very much on the back foot, so 1203-4, to he then actually heads back to England, and there's a huge loss of territory to Philip, France. He gets Poitou, Anjou, and Normandy. Wow, All go to France. Chateau Gaillard, that great beloved castle of Richard, gets captured. And in 1204, just a few months after the castle falls... Eleanor of Aquitaine finally dies at the age of 82. After all that, she died when it was all going wrong. After all that, she dies. Huge emotional loss for John, but also a huge strategic loss, partly because she was so amazing, Mm. but also because, again, she'd been holding some of those territories down for John, and now they're kind of up for grabs again. Mm. So it's all gone pretty disastrously, quite quickly, after a good start. Yeah, it's all gone on. So 1206 to 1213, he's basically just preparing for a big assault on France again to get the money and resources he needs to be able to take them back from Philip. As a result, imposes huge taxes on the country, nobles and the clergy, in order to fund... uh, Further taxes. Further taxes following everything that happened under Richard. Um, He has big disputes with uh, the new Pope, Innocent III. He's a much stronger a more forthright pope than some of his predecessors. Um, John was trying to appoint a new Archbishop of Canterbury, was in dispute with um, his own clergy about who it should be, and then the Pope wades in and says that he should appoint a person called Langton. John refuses, um, so in 1208, England as a whole is put, put under papal edict, meaning it's not allowed to do any ceremonies or church functions. All church life has to stop. Right, that's quite major. 1209, John gets excommunicated. Yes. Carries on quite happily for quite a while, but then in 1213, he's feeling a bit vulnerable. He wants to attack France. He's getting grief from the nobles. So to shore himself up, he comes to an accord with Innocent III, agrees to appoint Langton and let him back into the country, and he has England become a papal fiefdom. So in effect, England is now a vassal of the Pope. Why would he do that? To get the Pope's support back, basically. To but that's quite a bargain that the Pope's managed to pull off. That's Massive bargain, huge. yeah. Indeed. He could have just said sorry and install that chap. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe that wasn't <laughs> enough. Anyway, 1213, and he's dealt with that, and he now launches his big campaign to get all of his French territories back. So he goes over there, and he has various allies from in sort of Germany, sort of Austria, some other people of English leaders... So he starts off in Poitou, where he has a decent amount of success. But the main battle happens in Bouvain in 1214, which is about 400 miles north of where John is. So this is where his allies are taking on Philip. Major battle, and Philip is victorious. And John wasn't even there. John wasn't even there, and that basically decides the whole campaign. It's so decisive that it's all over. Mm. So John has to come back, and for all the money, all the taxes, all the hardship of the last sort of ten years... And it's failed. Achieved nothing. It's the last straw for the angry barons, so they rebel against John and force him at Runnymede to sign the Magna Carta. Huge, huge event. Huge event, we'll come to it more later, but basically it's the massive historical document which imposes legal restraints, formal legal restraints on the king's powers for really the first time properly. Yeah, I think if you were to ask them two legal documents the last thousand years, get Doomsday Book and Magna Carta... Mm. They're most influential, I guess. Indeed. Anyway, John, as is expected, has no intention of keeping to this, so as soon as he gets out, he reneges on all his promises. And we have the First Baron's War, 
And we basically end up with a sort of a civil war. So we've got John now with papal support, which is why, you know, it wasn't all bad that he sold the sold England. Because Innocent III now thinks, well, I've got dominion over England. So if, you know, the nobles are saying that they've got this power over the king, that's not just an affront to the king, it's an affront to me as the Pope, who is ahead of the king. So he declares it null and void and excommunicates everybody associated with it. So England's nobles bring in, to help them out against John, Prince Louis, the son of Philip, King of France. But who, but France is in with the Pope at this stage. France are just doing what they want, really. Slippery, slippery. <laughs> Very slippery is Philip II. So we've got a civil war between King John and his nobles with the help of Louis of France. Um, very tough, tough war. We'll go into it more in Bataliness, but... It's not going too well for John. So in 1216, Louis is pretty much in control of southern England. So he's got London, he's got Winchester. And then John loses crown jewels and treasures while he's going across the Lincoln Marshes. Oh, yeah, it's in the wash, apparently. In the wash, yeah. Still trying to find them, yeah. (laughs) Contracts dysentery. Gets rather ill. Despite having dysentery, he continues to gorge on cider and peaches until he finally succumbs to his illness and dies at the aged 49 years old in 1216. That's it. There's no... uh... No big last final battle between John and Louis. He dies of dysentery with his country teetering on the brink of civil war. All for the cider and peaches. All for cider and peaches. So that is that for John. What we do now is review him by um, how good he is in battle, uh, creating scandal, and whether you want to be a subject to him, for which Ali and I both score out of ten. And as well, we'll give him his score for how long he rules for, how many legitimate children he has, mm, and decide jobs. indeed, and decide whether or not he has um, a great achievement, a lasting legacy, star quality, which we call the Rex Factor. Do you know what I'm thinking straight away before we get into it? What are you thinking, Stephen? Stephen, well, indeed. Yeah, just you know, he, he just can't see through. through. He mm. does these battles really well at the start, and then mucks it all up. It's a good comparison. Mm. Let's get on to do the first review. Battleliness. So John's bad reputation largely comes mm. from the fact that he loses lots and lots of the territory. So as a prince, as he said, he had the nickname John Lackland, not a particularly good nickname mm, to have, unable to get himself any powerful position despite the fact that he is Henry II's favourite. Uh, in Ireland in 1185, as we saw, he had that rather farcical attempt to rule in person which ends with disaster because he tugs everybody's beards. <laughs> And then his rebellion against Richard, obviously he fails and is forced to sort of do a grovelling apology, mm. in which Richard responds, do not be afraid, John, you are but a child. It is other men who have really, really? done the bad stuff. So he's very dismissive of it. Yeah. Yeah. 1202 to 1204, we have the French losses. Of course, he loses Richard's beloved castle, Chateau Gaillard, which mm. he'd claimed that he could have held even if it had walls built of butter. Yeah. No, Richard, that is. He lost support, so after that great victory at Mirabeau, he offends his powerful ally, William de Roche. 22 rebel leaders died um, who were imprisoned because of the poor conditions they were kept in. And, of course, murdering Arthur, he lost all that support. So in 1203, he goes back to England, leaves his sort of other people there to deal with losing Normandy, Anjou and Poitou, for which he was nicknamed as Soft Sword, he was seen as being cowardly in comparison to Richard beforehand. Yeah, I mean, that's he was really... So there's some big shoes to fill in the battle. In the Very States. big shoes, and he doesn't there. No. And then, of course, um, Battle of Bouvan, 1214, it was John's defining campaign, really what he'd spent his whole kingship pretty much since losing Normandy preparing for. 
His tactic was to approach um, Poitou, so he was going from Brittany from the south, where he had more support, which I think apparently was the same tactic that the Black Prince uses in the Hundred Years still of War later, still to come. Um, he has a good victory in Poitou. He captures Nantes and Angers, but then 400 miles away, his allies take Philip on in the decisive battle. Unusual for the medieval period, in that it is a big open battle rather than a funny little siege. Yeah. So about 25,000... Um, imperial forces, i.e. John's allies, against 11,000 infantry for Philip and 4,000 cavalry. So Philip's got less men but a lot more cavalry, yeah, big cavalry. Way. It's a long, hard fight. Philip um, gets unhorsed at one point and nearly killed, but sees out, wins the campaign. And David Carpenter argues one of the most decisive battles in European history because Otto loses his crown in Germany to Frederick II. Normandy is now permanently gone yeah, out of yeah, the Antwerp yeah. Empire. Philip and France are now really supreme. A huge country, no longer overshadowed by England's empire. And John is forced to sign the Magna Carta. So That's huge true, consequences yeah, this battle. Huge. But not a very well-known battle. No. But it has a big impact. And then, of course, 1216. Barons and Louis have taken half the country. It's in pretty much civil war. And he's lost London. He's lost Winchester. Mm. Seems pretty disastrous. Hopeless, really. Yeah. However, we should, in fairness to him, say that he does have a difficult job. As we said... Um, he'd inherited quite a difficult position left by Richard. So many would argue the Angevin Empire was likely, it was inevitable, that it was going to break up. Yeah. Henry II had been planning to distri- distribute it amongst his sons, and it was only because so many of them died that it ended up just going to Richard, yeah. and then just going to John. So in many ways it was likely that it was going to be hard to keep hold of it all. Yeah, his his success was as bad as the state that Richard left it in. Yeah. And Richard had taken five years really hard grafting to get it all back together, mm. so it wasn't that he was just easily yeah. in control of it. And also resources was an issue. Say so Eleanor's death lost him some crucial support, and also he had no ports or frontiers from which to actually launch the recovery of Normandy, so he was always having to approach from hostile territory. So he couldn't oh, right, just launch yeah. a quick invasion. Mm. He had to do a lot of marching across hostile land. And it's thought that Philip was something like 70% wealthier for having control of Normandy. So that's why John has 70%? To, something like that. So John, that's why John has to try so hard raising all that money mm. in England, because he doesn't have the resources that Philip does to just take him on straight away. Yeah, yeah. So, however, despite losing um, areas in France, he does have some successes. So if you say Mirabeau, he has a great victory where he relieves Eleanor... Um, who's besieged mm. and he captures his nephew and he does but in fairness he storms 80 miles in just two days yeah. which and, you know like we do like good yeah. marching um, takes all those prisoners and he does remove Arthur as a rival to his uh, crown in England which he still was a threat mm. yeah. um, Chateau Gaillard although he lost the castle he did actually launch a very innovative attempt at um, relieving it so he planned a land and um, amphibian assault, oh, right. so he's going to, the two together we're going to take it on, and the reason it fails is that they got the timings out so that Philip... Didn't synchronise their watches Didn't synchronise their watches, so Philip was able to deal with one, and then deal with the other Yeah, but it was quite ahead of its time in terms yeah, yeah. of the method of attack, it just was a bit too complex for the time. But yeah, I see you've got here, you've got the castle breaking, because he does, it's successfully at Rochester He is quite good, and also Normandy, we should say he recognises he isn't in a position to take it and then goes back and prepares, so he's realistic as well, he doesn't yeah. take on foolhardy battles Yeah, he yeah. picks his fights Yeah 
Yeah, and then Ireland. He does have a more successful attempt in 1210, where he takes a large mercenary army, shows more favour to the Irish lords who support him, doesn't tug their beards anymore. Brings across a barber. Brings across yeah, a barber. As a result, English rule properly begins in Ireland, and he has castles built at Carrickfergus in Dublin. Reasonable. Interesting note yeah. on St. Patrick's Day, of course, which is when we're recording oh, yeah. this. And hey. hey. um, as yeah, and castle breaking. So most famously in the Civil War at Rochester, huge, huge siege depicted in the film, which I saw recently called Ironclad. I've got to see that. Yeah, got to see that. Um, he personally directed the siege, which was about a hundred men holding the castle, but very, very strong uh, defences. Yeah, they big keep, big keep. So flinty, he has, though. Five stone catapults, which eventually broke the outer walls. The defenders then were hauled up inside the keep. They couldn't get in there. So he brought in sappers to collapse, do the undermining, yeah. where I think he got 40 pigs. Yeah, so it's all the pig fat starts burning. That's mm. how he set the fire. And so it wasn't just pig fat. It was actually the whole pigs. Whole yeah. pigs. You got, um, if you go there now, you can see the, the it's a, a classic fairy tale keep. You've got um, big, very tall, wire, four turrets... But where three of them are square, the one that's uh, destroyed, mm. that the sappers bring down by tunnelling and then burning their supports, is um, round. Mm. So, the, so you can see the development of castle building in yeah. siege and pre-siege. So you can, and there's, I think, marked on the ground that they can tell where the tunnel went. Yeah, because they, they dig, dig under that tunnel, burn all the pigs, and then sort of half of the keep falls down. Yeah. But I think they were, they were still able to keep defending because that part of the keep was separated by a wall. Down the middle, yeah. yeah. Even in the keep itself, you can defend down the middle. It's brilliant, mm. actually brilliant. Eventually it was starvation, I think, rather than mm. military efforts that broke it. But nevertheless, John does break what was at the time thought to be the most heroic defensive mm. um, siege yeah. that there had been. So John breaks it. He then goes from Rochester to take Winchester, all the way up to take Berwick, Comes all the way back again to Essex, where he captures Colchester, Headingham, also Framlingham Castle. So he's actually very successful at taking these castles, and it's not certain by any means that he would have been defeated in 1216 if he hadn't got sick. Mm. And in fact, as someone pointed out, he never actually really loses in battle. Yeah, he just loses. He just loses the peace. Yeah, he loses the peace, and he loses. And there are strategic points at which he realizes he can't win, but he never actually gets bullied away by anybody. He's not a pushover in the way that maybe his reputation mm. would have you believe. And Dover is never lost, so he's always got that bit on the castle, yeah. uh, on the on the like key to England yeah. is always there. So it's in many ways disastrous, but he's not a completely incompetent yeah. general. So it's, it's a sort of a tricky one in a way to score. Huge loss of territory, but some individual bits of success and innovation. Yeah, but huge loss of territory, like we're saying, was possibly inevitable given the state of the Angevin mm. Empire when he inherited it. And so, given what he was given, yeah. he um, did a reasonable job of of sort of making it as tidy as possible. And he did, he did what he, he tried as hard as he could to get it back. But, yeah, but... Yeah. He doesn't, so it's difficult. I think it's not like an Ethelred the Unready where we just see a sort of almost complete collapse whereby the Vikings mm. just yeah. stroll in. And yeah, rape and pillage everywhere. Open, yeah. He's pitted against a strong rival in Philip II of France, and basically Philip always just about gets the upper edge. Because of he's in a much better situation. And you do really well at battling if you then pull off one of those victories, even in the space of a yeah. disadvantage. But I, still, it's not bad, is it? Mm. It's, I, it's, I want to say five, but actually what I'm thinking is four, mm. because 
he never quite pulls it off. It, yeah. It's fine, and at home it's it's really rather good. Mm. But it, I mean, he is fighting his own people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I'm going to go four. Yeah, I think um, I think I'm going to give him a four as well. I think it's you can't he can't get a score really above half marks no, given exactly. that he's essentially he's lost a huge amount of territory. But he does it well somehow. But yeah, it's sort yeah. of like he's always losing on penalties. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. So that's eight for battliness, which isn't as disastrous as you might expect, but not great. Mm. Scandal. It's good. Plenty to go on here. Um, first off, his wife Isabel of Angoulême. He was actually originally married to a woman called Isabel of Gloucester. Don't know if he had something about the name, but uh, he had to annul that marriage in a hurry because he basically meets Isabel of Angoulême, falls for her straight away, and just marries instantly. There's no ceremony. So he just instantly just gets married. Oh, so he probably nice. had to actually annul the marriage to his first oh. wife after <laughs> second marriage. Tricky. But it's rather controversial for numerous reasons, not least of which is her age. Because girls often married younger than in that period yeah. than they are now. But nevertheless, she was aged no more than... At, at most, she was 15, but she may even have been as young as nine. So she's a, and he fell in love with her. She's a young girl, probably around the 11, 12 sort of mark Crikey. so it it was common for people to be betrothed at this incredibly young age but usually the marriage would wait until she was of the age of yeah and ones consent. of um, uh, like arranged marriages rather than ones of love with a yeah. nine year old yeah and so she doesn't actually have any children until 1207 and then after that has them quite regularly which suggests that she wasn't probably physically yeah. ready yeah. to have children so yeah, that's even at the time she was considered to be indecently young. <laughs> even for the medieval period. Even then. Yeah. Wow. And of course, as she was betrothed but not married, because he had some standards, to his rival Hugh de Lusignan, and the immediacy of the marriage and the contemptuous treatment that he was given to, by John afterwards, of course, leads to the war with France and leads to him losing Normandy and all that territory. So it's quite. On the one hand, strategically, it could have been beneficial, but ultimately, it's actually quite disastrous. Yeah, very disastrous. I mean, well, it was the spark that was yeah, it was going to set off, wasn't it? Mm. But yeah, still not not perhaps not the most tactful. And she apparently was had a bit of reputation for being um, unfaithful. So apparently, in, in twelve ten, she was actually imprisoned for a while, potentially because he who got, Isabel of Yeah, because oh. she I mean she was about twenty years younger than him. Yeah, at the time as well. Mm. However, John himself um, is no stranger to the world of infidelity. He uh, had several bastard children, probably before um, he married Isabel of Angoulême, but nevertheless his infidelities continue. And what's particularly scandalous at the time is that he has a tendency to have his way with the wives and daughters of his barons. They're no wonder. They're not pleased about this, and indeed is actually cited by some of them as a cause for rebellion, yeah, in the fact that right. he's having sex with their wives and children. Yeah. So, and it's considered bad form. It, is it? Yeah, I yes. imagine, yeah. With peasant girls and whatnot, obviously yeah. it's fine, but with proper noble women, you're mm. not meant to do it. So, irks quite a few people there. Murder of his nephew, Arthur of Brittany, very scandalous. And, we, and we're sure about this? Oh, well, I mean, he disappears, he gets imprisoned and never comes out again. Mm. So sort of like the princes in the town, yeah. in a way, where you think, well, he probably must have done it. It was said that he had had him murdered, or they asked him to be murdered or blinded or whatever, and apparently one legend says that they refused to do it for fear of reprisals. 
And then the Margam Annals has this record saying that after King John had captured Arthur and kept him alive in prison for some time in the castle of Ruin, after dinner on the Thursday before Easter, when he, John, was drunk and possessed by the devil, he slew him with his own hand and tying a heavy stone to the body, cast it into the same. So it's some allege even that John killed him by his own hand. Might not have done, of course. This is a legendary story, but it's pretty bad. And so we remember that Henry I had imprisoned his older brother Robert, but kept him in prison for like 30 years. Yeah. He didn't actually kill him, because, yeah. you know, that's a line well, you don't cross. Yeah. <laughs> but John crosses it. <laughs> May even yeah. have done it personally. That's not, that's not too good. That's and he has, huge. he has a reputation for cruelty, so he also he starved a uh, wife and son of a Welsh march lord, William de Bros. Uh, to death in the castle. Just he stabs a man to death? Starved. Oh, starved. The wife and son to oh. death. Just left them in the castle. That's horrible. Them. That's pretty unpleasant. And he's a treacherous figure, as we've seen. So he betrayed his own father and his brother. And we have the legend of Robin Hood, of course, where mm. John is the evil, villainous prince yeah. trying to steal the heroic Richard's throne. Um, and the barons, um, he tended to favour foreign men of ill repute because he was quite suspicious of his own men, which meant that they yeah. were, had quite a... Yeah. More, more reasons and he's a bit of a show-off so unlike Henry II and Richard III he, uh, Richard I sorry, he embraces all the trappings of royalty nothing to back it up with indeed so he's had lots of feast days with crown wearing and trumpeters always in his household and he had lots of fly, fine clothing and uh, jewellery which makes it particularly ironic that it's him who apparently loses, <laughs> yeah, loses the crown jewels in 1216 and finally he was also thought at the time to be very impious are you not Why? very religious? Well, at his, cor- oh, yeah. his coronation, apparently he declined to take the communion, right, the bread and the wine, which is seen as being tantamount to godlessness. Um, he also was excommunicated, of course, England put under papal edicts, and he's renowned for his blasphemous remarks, particularly scandalous jokes about church doctrine, not least uh, suggesting that the resurrection of Christ was implausible. Brilliant. So we've actually found our first atheist king. Well, some some would say that. However, it's arguable that it was actually exaggerated. But that would he, explain why he's playing quite fast and loose with um, the excommunication and yes. he didn't really care. Well, I mean, it's, and I'd say, on the other hand, he was devoted to St. Wolfstan and wanted to be buried at his um, cathedral in Worcester. He was an English saint, I think, before our proper period. Yeah. But probably just like the... the, um, the Myths and legends, really. Well, probably did. Founded um, Cistercian Abbey of Bewley Abbey. Um, and it's probably that he wasn't actually an atheist. He just, like his predecessors, he followed the practice of religion mm. when it suited without really any care to the yeah. substance of it. <laughs> but he's certainly not a very devout Alfred like yeah. figure. Yeah. He's the most sceptical <laughs> of our it's, kids. So that, I suppose that is scandal, isn't it? Pretty, I mean, he was considered it's good, by yeah, contemporaries time, to be yeah. godless. Yeah. So, a lot to go on there. Very scandalous. I think right? that's brilliant. Mm. I can't, I mean... So, sex, tick. Yep. With barons causing a massive revolt, one of the reasons of. Yeah. Tick, huge. Young girl as well. Young girl, tick. Which causes a war. <laughs> yeah. Which causes... Oh, my goodness me. And then, not only that, we have um, uh, the murder... Of Arthur, possibly personally. <laughs> yeah. What else is there to go on? And a bit godless. Oh, and a bit godless, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's fantastic. It's huge. That's ticking every single box, you can't, really, I mean, this it? bad King John moniker, you can see where yeah. that's come from. Wow. I've, that's, what do we give... Um, High school we've ever had was 17 and a half for Henry II. 
we had Beckett. So there maybe isn't a, a headline there isn't history more, grabber, really. but there's a lot more of it. Yeah, there's a lot more of it than, than Henry II, really. Yeah. It's just that that had um, the newspaper headlines. Yeah. If this guy Arthur turned out to be a saint, he would be ten yeah. points. Yeah. So, given that he's not, I can't see how we can't give him an eight or a nine. I'm going to go for a nine, I think. It's got to be big. Yeah. I, I mean, can you jolt my memory and think of anyone else that has nearly as much scandal? No, I mean, William Rufus, of course, offended lots of church people and was maybe a bit of a homosexual. Henry I did quite a lot of nasty But he wouldn't things. have murdered anyone. R- Rufus was quite good fun. It was good fun, yeah. <laughs> Henry, uh, Richard the Lionheart murdered all those prisoners and did some dodgy stuff. Yeah, that was in the name of Edgar war. the Peaceable had all the nuns and... Yeah, sex, tics, six. I'm going nine. I yeah. think it's brilliant. And then, it, then we, there's some... Credence that bad King John. Indeed. So that's 18 for subjectivity, our highest ever score for subjectivity. So uh, for scandal. Uh, scandal, so yeah. yes. <laughs> Not subjectivity. Back on track for John. Subjectivity. So, would we want to be a subject of King John? His personality, um, just to get a bit of an insight into the man, apparently he enjoyed reading, so he had a large library of books for travelling. Enthusiastic gambler and hunter, even for, uh, even for the time. Apparently he quite preferred company of animals to people all the time. Um, delighted in the fineries of life, so clothes, jewels, wine. Indeed, one of his more popular moves as king was to lower the prices on imported wine from Plateau, sort of from the Loire Valley. And he could be quite genial, could be witty and generous, but also jealous, suspicious, and like his father, prone to fits of rage. So apparently he used to, rather than the carpet, like Henry II, he used oh, yeah. to bite and gnaw at his own fingers. Ooh. And he got across. Was and that in the film you saw? Well, in the film, Paul Giamatti as King John yeah. has a massive, massive rant at one point, a huge shouting thing, where in um, Five Live Review they said that he chews the scenery, which I think, in comparison to Henry II, <laughs> really? who chewed a rug, it's quite appropriate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he does, actually. He, he does, does that, really he? does, yeah. So, bad stuff for John. Heavy, heavy taxation on the country. As we said, already suffered under Richard for paying the ransom and paying for his crusades. But John, on top of this, needs to prepare for war to try and take back France. So he levies scootage, which is where the nobles pay for fee in lieu of military service. He levies it 11 times in his reign. It had only been levied 11 times in the previous 45 years. So that's a much higher rate than... And they'd have preferred to go into war, I guess. Yeah, indeed. Um, New taxes on rents and chattels, which are seen as a sort of proto-income tax... Right. which uh, in 1207 raises £60,000, which is double what the annual revenue used to be in the 12th century. Right, yeah, that's uh, popular. Tightens up the forest laws to m- get more profit from that. When the church is under papal edict, as we say, John doesn't bother at first too much, and in fact he just, like William Rufus, just collects all the money <laughs> that the church would usually be getting for itself. He just takes He's it. Brilliant. So that's £100,000 of church revenues wow. that he takes. That all goes into that war fund, I suppose. All goes into the war fund. Um, Jews, we remember, very vulnerable, as we'd under Richard, there yeah. being those massacres, so they relied on the king for protection, so, of course, he subjects them to huge taxes. Uh, in 1210, yeah. apparently raised about £44,000 just from Jews in England, which yeah, isn't many, it's a few hundred. Yeah, yeah. Um, economic uncertainty as well, so initially there was inflation because there was a bad harvest and the high prices of grain. Then there was a deflation because he was stockpiling all of this silver... Um, to pay for things for the war. And particularly the the Northerners, who previously hadn't experienced this sort of direct rule from an English monarch, but now everyone's in it together. So, so, um, (coughs) direct rule because 
because John's was there. Away. Richard had been away. Henry had always been around in his territories, but John, for the most part, is in England. But that, I mean, that could be, a, could have been. I know it isn't, but could have yeah. been a good thing. Could have been in a way. As we say, he is properly king of England more yeah. than he's king of anywhere else. But this means a lot of pressure on everybody in England. Mm. Um, of course, we have the church dispute over who should be the archbishop, a papal edict, and ultimately England becomes a fiefdom of the papacy. Mm. So he sort of sold yeah. England in yeah. a way. I mean, that would have been for those um, God-fearing peasants and stuff. Probably would have hated that, I guess. Yeah, probably some people weren't able to get Buried burials and, yeah. and baptisms and etc. We then have, of course, the Barons' Rebellion and the Civil War, which is never good for subjectivity. The country split in half, families. Um, yeah. against each other on the verge of a French conquest again and apparently John when he was going up and down um, to and from Berwick apparently laid a lot of the country particularly in the north um, oh, poor waste. the poor waste so sort poor of north, the first uh, since William the Conqueror really laid a lot of harrying the north, harrying the north. not to that extent but nevertheless yeah. not yeah. pleasant however he does have some good points <laughs> go on uh, in terms of administration, he's probably one of the few kings of this period who really took an interest in the fine details, and he put himself right at the heart of the bureaucratic machine, so he's very much involved in the day-to-day runnings of things. Yeah. Um, we have, from this period, chancery roles, which are these records of the king's charters and letters in terms of what he was doing. So it's like the exchequer had the pipe rolls, these really long rolls and records. Yeah. We now have them for John, for the king, for his movements and his decisions. I mean, the thing is, he's going to be involved in this administration because he doesn't have any land to go anywhere else. He's got to busy himself doing something. He's got to do something. And, of course, the fact that he's able to raise such a huge amount of money shows that he actually does have some administrative success and he's able to raise the money. Under the minority of his son, Henry III, later, they struggle, really struggle in terms of finances. So John obviously has some ability Mm. in this regard. Although... Historian John Gillingham uh, has disputed some of this. Uh, he says that John, despite being one of the legendary villains of English history, he says the most overrated king in English history. Still which starting from a low point. <laughs> uh, in fact, he was a very poor king, incompetent where it really mattered in the field of man management. And he says he was only efficient because he'd inherited a more bureaucratic system. So it wasn't that he worked. So he's building on the yeah. yeah. Justice, he also gets himself involved, so he increases the skills and independence of local sergeants and bailiffs and also creates local coroners. Uh, worked hard to ensure the system worked effectively and even intervened personally, even in quite relatively minor cases. So historian Lewis Warren has said that he discharged his royal duty of uh, providing justice with a zeal and tirelessness to which English common law is greatly indebted. So it's suggesting that he helped move things along. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, we are indebted to him for a lot of things, but... <laughs> The time. Rubbish. On the other hand, you could argue that actually the fact that routine cases sometimes had to have the king's involvement actually made it impossibly inconvenient. Yeah. So he's just getting slow. himself in and denying yeah. justice because it's too slow. The big thing, of course, for subjectivity is the Magna Carta. So as you said, huge document, legal document in England history. Sadly, original signed copy, I think, is now lost. They We've got have, quite an original one. They've got quite an original like a copy, They did five, five copies? Five copies. I don't yeah. think the actual historic oh, right. moments yeah. where he signs it, I don't think they've got that one. John probably correctly. <laughs> yeah, there are some eloquent declarations of principle which are still invoked today. Most famously, no free man shall be arrested or imprisoned or dispossessed or outlawed or exiled or in any way ruined except by lawful judgment of his peers or by the law of the land. Yeah. So this is sort of an essential right of... An Englishman. 
Being eroded at the moment, of course. Satire, We're all over the place with our satire. <laughs> However, a lot of clauses also concern quite detailed points of law and administration. For example, there's a thing about removing fish traps from the Thames. What? Yeah, it's obviously just... Essentially, it's a document of things in which the nobles are unhappy with John about. Oh. So some of them are big, big, weighty legal issues. Others are, get rid of the fish traps. Wow, it's just a list of gripes. Can you always leave the toilet seat down? (laughs) (laughs) Still important at the time, so it went further than any other contemporary document had done in terms of covering church, family law, tax, legal proceedings. Mm. And England's was then established as an entire commune, i.e. where the people and nobles could coerce uh, the king to see his rights and their rights in terms of what he was meant to do for them as king. It is good. I mean, the Magna Carta... Two thumbs up. Although, interestingly, it's important. Only really grows later. So, as you said, John never actually upholds it, yeah. and the nobles never thought yeah. that he would. It doesn't get mentioned by Shakespeare, who did a play, King John. He doesn't mention Magna Carta. So, it's only really from the Stuarts when um, they use it against parliamentarians, uh, parliamentarians use it against the Stuarts, that it starts to be invoked as this sort of great point in English history where oh, our rights against the king are established. Huh. Does it get brought up uh, in the Barons' Revolt later in this century? Yeah, it does get brought up later. It's saying in Reign of Henry III, which we see William Marshall sort of invokes yeah. it and brings it back. So it does come back again but later. But it's not actually as mm. important. Oh, right. Mm. So that's John it's... for subjectivity. A lot of bad stuff, but quote that you love from Churchill, when the long tally is added, it will be seen that the British nation and the English-speaking world owe far more to the vices of John than to the labours of virtuous sovereigns. You see, that's brilliant. That, to me, sums it all up. This isn't the final summing up, but (laughs) but I think that really where John John is most interesting is this subjectivity bit, because it's terrible at the time, but the result of which is is brilliant. So at Mm. the time, if we're judging it for the time, subjectivity, terrible civil war, heavy taxation, but as a result of all that, much better for future Ma- generations. Magna so he's not, Yeah, he's his. Yeah, his. Our victory and his failure. Mm. But I suppose, person, I say from subjectivity point of view, it's it is John's failure and it's against John and ultimately John rebels against it. Yeah. So I don't. It's one of those tricky things where a big thing happens which I don't think we can credit him for. No, we can't credit. Yeah. I think yeah. if it was that somebody else had written it and he said, "Oh, fine, whatever, I'll sign it." Yeah, then but, I mean, we'd he, probably give him the credit because yeah, it happened. Yeah. But the fact that he fought a civil war against it, yeah. I think, means he doesn't deserve to be credited. And whatever whatever good things come of it can't be credited to him, so he just gets the bad stuff. He I just think, gets I mean, all the bad, I think. And, yeah, I think it should be almost proportional to how good his, his scandal is. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's as bad as his activity yeah. is. So, so, I mean, one... Two because of the justice stuff. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, I'm going to give him a. I'm going to give him a two as well for. Yeah, so justice, a bit of administration, but but generally you would not that. have wanted to be subject no. to King John. No, that's a four for subjectivities up and down all over the place. Longevity. So he ruled from 1199 to 1216. So that's 17 years as king, which isn't too bad. No, more much more than Richard. Yeah, but I mean, he was wasn't a crusader, was he? Indeed, didn't was he? Was he ever? Because um, Innocent was a big crusading pope. Well, <laughs> one of the ways in which John got support from Innocent III against the Magna Carta was that at that point John took the cross, 
a knight said, yes, oh. now I'm a crusading knight. Yeah. Help. Yeah, okay. Right. So he really was not only terrifically slippery, but he just used the church he anyway. He was a raging hypocrite. Yeah. Brilliant. I mean, I, I think that's... Um, and that's pretty good. I think it's pretty funny. <laughs> Dynasty, not the program. So he has five legitimate children by Isabel of Angoulême, all of whom survived John. It's pretty good so score. He then. does have a dynasty, so that's a total of five uh, for dynasty, which gives him fifty-two oh, points. That's which is actually one more than Richard the Lionheart. That's <laughs> amazing. That's like it being planned. That's <laughs> superb. So. Um, Interesting one. Richard would be so annoyed. Oh, he'd be massively, (laughs) massively annoyed. Although Richard probably would discount subjectivity and longevity as irrelevant categories. But nevertheless, John can't be completely ruled out of the bag. So now we come on to our final category where we ask, does he have that sense of greatness, the star quality, a legacy, a great achievement that means he deserves the... Rex Factor! My honest opinion... Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, let's let, let's, you ask. <laughs> let's argue in favour first of all. But yeah, well, what I was going to say was in favour is all the stuff about the subjectivity. Mm. Can't, but they can't. It can't be attributed to him. Without him, it wouldn't have happened. Yeah, but because I mean, it's all because of his failures. It's not. It's not anything to. He should have been proud of. It's, it's something that people's react. We should be proud of the reaction against him. I mean, we sort of. I think we pointed out that some of his reputation, some of the things which were said at the start about him being the most evil, incompetent, rubbish king mm. you could possibly have, clearly isn't true. He's um, not a great king. He doesn't succeed, but he's not without qualities. And an interesting point someone made was that he doesn't really have any personal purpose. It's like Henry II had seen himself in the vein of his grandfather, Henry I, a strong, yeah. just ruler. Richard I had this chivalric idea of heroism in the Crusades. John Milley is just responding to events yeah. rather than shaping them. Yeah. And he's not yeah, he's yeah. always slightly behind Philip II. So he's not terrible, but he's just, you know... Yeah, exactly. And I think that... I'll come back to the Stephen thing, because I think that was the same problem with Stephen. Mm, he wanted to be king. As well. yeah. And once he got there, it was just a bit... Oh, a bit of more than I could chew here. Yeah. And he he was successful in specifically in battle, mm. but then it couldn't see the strategy over the top. John sometimes successful in battle, but then couldn't see a theme to it and can and had mm. it wasn't connected. The whole the whole thing sort of just falls apart somehow. The best slightly perverse argument I can think for giving John the Rex factor would be that he has the star quality for the exact opposite of Richard the Lionheart. He is a legendary bad king. <laughs> yeah, that's really true. Actually, you d- everyone knows bad King John. Yeah, that's yeah, that is. That's true. the best argument in his favour. Is, is that, that he's, he's so bad. so bad? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although, as we've argued, actually, he isn't quite as bad as his reputation. He's so bad he deserves a Rex Factor, but he doesn't deserve a Rex Factor because he wasn't actually that bad. Yeah, he's I'm not happy to sum it up. He's like much that. more poorly mediocre than his <laughs> reputation. There he goes. Okay, I, I think that's a good sign. So, your final judgment, does he have the Rex Factor, yes or no? He does, but he doesn't because he's not actually that bad. So it's a... No. And it's a no for me as well. John, uh, for your poor to mediocre performance, you don't have the Rex Factor. If you'd only been as bad as everybody thought you would, yeah. maybe. <laughs> but on, on the plus side, you scored one more year than your brother. Indeed. So... That's it for King John. He doesn't have the Rex Factor. Next week we'll be doing his son, 
Henry the Third. Yeah, getting very, very close, close to Edward, Edward the First. Okay. And as you pointed out the other day, actually, King John, grandfather of Edward the First. Very strange. Unbelievable. Mm. But it, this is good. You see, you take, I mean, the high score doesn't necessarily mean Rex Factor. Exactly. Yeah. So that's it for John. We'll see you next time with Henry the Third. Cheerio.